Welcome everybody to episode 66 of the Anagram Journey podcast with your Anagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. Today's episode is part one of two with Anagram Ford, Brian McLaren. Their conversation was recorded live at the Lumeria Bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi during the 2019 Mississippi Book Festival. So some of you may have been there and stopped in, but thank you for coming out. Brian has written 19 books. And the most recent one that I've read is The Great Spiritual Migration, and they talk about that on these two episodes. Today, though, they dive into talking about both his three-wing and his five-wing, talk about movements and stress and security, orientation to time of both people and the church, and what does maturity mean. Very exciting announcement. We are having another live podcast. So this one is going to be Friday, October 18th at the Highland Oaks Church of Christ in Dallas. That might sound familiar to you. That is because on October 19th, Suzanne is teaching on the four mantras, relationships, and the Enneagram at Highland Oaks. So if you are looking for more incentive to come, now you've got it. It's going to be a panel with six guests, two Enneagram 3s, two Enneagram 6s, and two Enneagram 9s. How can you be both dominant and repressed in the same thing? If you have that question... You're going to get an answer that night for sure. And those are always just a lot of fun. You can find a link for tickets for that at theanniegramjourney.org, lifeinthetrinityministry.com, or suzannestabile.com. All right, we've got a while to talk here at Lemuria in this unbelievably great bookstore. And we've never had any trouble having a conversation privately or publicly. So I want to talk a little bit about the Enneagram, but then I want to just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Fantastic. So I remember uh, when we first started talking about you being a four, I had just taught the whole room that uh, every number has one wing for the first half of life and they add another wing in the second half of life, except nines, and they can have both wings for all of their lives. Mm. And you immediately said, and me. <laughs> because you said, as a four, that you've you've had both wings all your life. So, will you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, uh, I, I think growing up, I was uh, a four more with a five wing because I... Uh, I just was a nerd. I just loved to read. I loved to study. I loved nature. I, when I was a little kid, being here in a bookstore is so yeah. cool because uh, I loved libraries. And uh, I was so interested in animals and, you know, like little yeah. boys, yeah. dinosaurs and all that. Uh, I read every book in the children's section. Then I went to the, you know, high school section. I read all the textbooks. Like I was just, that was sort that of kid. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but interestingly, my kind of spiritual conversion and journey got me caring about people a lot. And I found myself in a kind of leadership position. And I also was a musician and I started writing music. And I think that all came out of the four part. Well, if you write music, you have to perform. That's right. and so I think all of that drew me into three space pretty quickly. But then I was a pastor, and I realized to make it as a pastor, I had to have some of that three skill. Sure. So, and especially I was a church planter, so I was having to create a new business, really. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So I, I think I, I felt fluent in, I felt equally fluent in both. Maybe I felt that the three part of it took a lot more energy, but it was just necessary, and reality required it of me. And I'm, I'm glad. I feel like it was sort of brain capacity that right. I developed. It was yeah. there for the part you needed it for. Yeah. yeah. You're one of the most interesting friends I have. Well, that's saying a lot. It is saying uh, a lot. You have a lot of people who count you as a friend. But I, I think that that's true in part because for reasons that seem different than Joe. So, you know, everybody knows that. I'm crazy about him and that one of the things I admire about him the most is that he has room for everybody. You have a different kind of room for everybody. And I think there's a chance that that's because you're a four and he's a nine. Mm. Most people don't have room for everybody. Mm. So that's a common characteristic yeah. between the two of you. 
that we three know is not a characteristic of me. Well, I mean, that I wouldn't know that if you didn't tell me, but anyway. Uh, well, I, you know, I mostly... I, I will let everybody in the space, but I won't take everybody with me from the space, <laughs> right? So uh, you and I were teaching one time with Nadia, and a man in the room asked us a question, and the question was, uh, why do we have to do baptisms during worship? Why are we wasting good church time doing baptisms, and why are we doing the same with communion? Do you remember that? I don't. Well, Nadia said, put her hand up and she said, I reject the question. <laughs> and I'm, it's when we were in Dallas, so I'm yeah. kind of hosting this thing. Yeah. And so everybody looked at me and I thought, well, I, I don't, uh, and you, and I'd been with this guy all morning. You and Nadia were kind of floating, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I'd been in that room teaching community all morning. Yes. So, um, you pulled up a chair and turned it around and sat down straddling the chair and you looked right at him and you said, I bet a lot of people feel the way you do. Tell me more about that. Hmm. That's having room for everybody. Hmm. And Nadia looked at me. She was up on a stool and I'm sitting down here on a chair and she's so big anyway and she looked at me and she said, don't you just hate teaching with him? <laughs> And I said, sometimes. <laughs> so it's that kind of room yeah. that I'm talking about. Do you, it's not just grace, it's space. Mm. Do you think that's your foreness? Do you think that's connected to something that you grew up around? Yeah. Where is that from? So I, I want to be as transparent, transparent as I can. Being a four, I want to be authentic. Yeah. So... Look, you know, I think, you know that phrase, uh, some people don't suffer fools gladly. Is that the yes. phrase? Yes. I think I have a good string of that in me. Oh. Uh, I, I think I don't suffer fools gladly. Part of it was my spiritual commitment as a Christian. Part of it was being a pastor where I had to be good at being a Christian. Sure, you know? sure. Um, I, I realized that that unwillingness to suffer fools gladly and to be so quick to categorize some people as fools, I, uh, I think I, I had to take that as a weakness that I had to counteract. You know, um, I, I, was, I had a, a bit of a mean streak. I remember I almost got beat up on the playground once when I, I said something to one of the bullies in the, yeah, in, yeah. on the playground. And I think maybe that was part of my foreness too. I, sure. I was... It's wrong. I was standing up to his. I thought his. I thought he was a fool for yeah. being a bully. There you go. And he just about beat me. Like he was about ready to give it to me. And and then he stopped and he said, "Your mouth's going to get you in trouble," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he didn't. Think. I yeah. guess it was a yeah. warning shot. And I remember thinking, "Yeah, that's probably true. I can imagine that." But I, I think because I had that tendency, I had to work pretty hard to say, "What am I going to do if I'm not going to just." get in trouble and sure. if I'm not just gonna write off a whole bunch of people who my instant thought is that's a fool you know and I think maybe the, the part of me that leans five because I I read a lot and I thought a lot and I challenged my own thinking a lot uh, you know I could tell when I knew something more than somebody else so I was pretty ready to write them off so I maybe the four part of me that it, it, it is curious and wants to understand the deeper system of how things work and see sort of the ecology of the human sure. person. That part probably draws me to try to understand people. But I, I, I would have to say some of it is compensating for a weakness. Or not a weakness, but a, 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 tra a trait that could get me in trouble and could hurt people. So it's self-care in a way, and, for, and it's caring for other people. It, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's like... Look, how many people do I want to damage? I guess this is part of how people manage, try to manage their authenticity. Sure. If in my authenticity, I just think that person's an idiot, you know? Yeah. Part of me wants to just tell them that. Like I, I had a professor once in graduate school. I, I gave a presentation. I worked really hard on it. And I finished my presentation. She sat back, looked across the table, you know, yeah. 12 or 14 of my right. fellow students. And she says, my, my, my. 
One seldom observes such incompetence in public. <laughs> well, what was really interesting is part of me was like, I was hurt, I was embarrassed, yeah. but part of me was, wow, she told it like it was, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, I think the, that desire for authenticity mm -hmm. actually had me appreciate that a little bit. Uh, so, oh, because you, just for the honesty value. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. I get so, that. Uh, so, but what do you do if you authentically want to be a caring person and authentically see some people and think, they just don't get it, you yeah. know? Inadequate's my word. You, you then have to push through, it's like you have to take these two contrary things, mash them together and come up with some constructive response. That's how it feels to me. So in that situation, although I don't exactly remember it, I, what I would imagine is I'd be thinking that was an unhelpful comment. That comment was based on 50 unsupportable assumptions. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but he's coming from somewhere. Let's mm -hmm. try to understand where he's coming from. Yeah. So. I'm a little sad that you've forgotten it because Nadia and I talk about it every time we're together. <laughs> we haven't. Well, I'm embarrassed about how much I forget. But anyway. So here, I want to ask you this. I'm, I'm pretty sure, not positive, but I'm pretty sure that you're more introvert than extrovert. Oh, yeah. And I know that you're more comfortable talking about ideas and feelings. Mm -hmm. Like so many of the men in my life, when I get all mushy, you back up a little. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but I, I also want to know if you think that you protect yourself from extravagant feelings in other people because as a four, your feelings are so extravagant? Yes. Next question. <laughs> I worked hard on that one. No, it's a great question. You know, here's another place where it feels like inside of me live two tensions. One is uh, wanting to be a good person, which mm -hmm. feels like a very authentic thing. And the other is wanting to be true to my feelings and wanting to and, and acknowledging them and not wanting to cover them and mashing those things together in the context of other people's intense feelings. It's really complicated. So I think uh, it's a little bit like extroversion and introversion. As an introvert, you really love people. You want to be with them. Mm -hmm. But you reach your limit, and then you just think, how am I going to manage this That's without right. totally, you know, evaporating? Right, right, uh, right. Okay, uh, you've heard me say that uh, Thomas Merton identified as a four, and he says he had a very big five-wing first half of life and yeah. second half, right? And you've heard me say that... Uh, that means that he's compelling because that five wing is so strong. Mm -hmm. He speaks from head and heart mm -hmm. when most of us speak from one or the other. Mm -hmm. And if you can speak from head and heart, and if you're not distracted by what your gut picks mm -hmm. up, then you can really say some powerful things. Mm -hmm. You've said some very powerful things in your writing. Mm. Um, I've been reading you for t 10 years at least. Mm. I've read it all. Mm. Would you tip your hat to that four or five space as a part of that, or does that sound foreign to you? No, that feels very, that feels very authentic. Uh, I'll tell you one place where the three feels like it fits in. Okay. Uh, I think this could be true of fives and fours too, I'm sure, but uh, there's something about not wanting to be embarrassed that makes me, uh, if in, in the realm of study and thought, like I want to find out what's wrong with my idea before somebody else does. Okay. Now that might be a four thing as well. Mm -hmm. the, the, the quickness to say there's something wrong with me, right? Uh, uh, my first reaction, if, uh, especially in my writing, if someone criticizes my writing, my first reaction isn't defensive, like, you're wrong. My first reaction is, 
I could have done a better job and I would have avoided that misconception. There you go. There you go. So uh, I'm not wrong. I just didn't communicate well. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and and if I am wrong, I want to figure it out before they do. do. In other words, mm-hmm. oh, I'm even more wrong than they realize. You know, in other yeah. words, I, 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 yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a four dimension that it feels like there's a little bit of three success dimension to that. But, you know, I realize that some people really are not curious. Like, I, I realize that maybe it's a five gift. I'm sure that all of us have to some degree, but just the real curiosity. I really want to understand this. Sure. I really want to sure. know. I can't hold myself back. I like being in a bookstore. I just think every single one of these books has something I could learn. You know, yeah. it's a, yeah. oh my goodness, it's intoxicating. It's unending, yeah. right? The opportunity. Yeah. So um, I want to see where you are on this. If, if for fives, if you disagree with what they think, it hurts their feelings. Mm-hmm. For fours, if you uh, challenge their feelings, they feel like they are inadequate thinkers. Mm-hmm. Does it ever hurt your feelings if people disagree with what you think? That's a good question. I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed to say this, but uh, first of all, I don't have very often, I don't have people successfully disagree with what I think. I love and, that so much. <laughs> so, Let me see if I can think of anybody who. <laughs> well, what I mean is I have people who call me names or people sure. who say what I'm saying doesn't fit in with something else. But it's actually been relatively rarely that I've had, I, like I would like that. I would actually like yeah. somebody to sit down and say, here's why I disagree, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Other than just saying, I disagree because, you know, I'm a, I'm a this denomination, or yeah. I'm this, you know, and, and we're not allowed to think that, and you're going against what we think. So, so it's, it's a little hard for me to, to, to say that. What I think hurts my, if I were to say what hurts my feelings, it's that people don't have the, curiosity mm-hmm. to actually try to understand what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I think it feels like, yeah, I, I don't know, that bothers me in some way uh, more than that they disagree. Mm-hmm. In a way, I almost feel like, oh, I understand why you disagree. You disagree because you belong to this community that's right. not allowed to think what I'm saying. Right. And by me saying it, it puts you in a tough situation. And I understand that pain, you know. I couldn't have scripted that better. Thank you very much. <laughs> because part of the thing that people have to understand when they have a big wing yeah. is that you don't become that number. Yeah. And that's a very for answer. Yeah. Because it's not a matter of people agreeing with what you think. Yeah. It's a matter of you being authentic about what yeah. you think. Yeah. And that's fourness, not fiveness. Yeah. And I have friends who are fives and I watch them react and I just think, I'd never react that way. I get it that you right. want to react that way. But right. I, I have a friend who is a scholar, and that's in some ways my decision. I think my coming to terms with my own identity before I'd ever heard of Enneagram. I remember sitting in my basement when I had this internal conversation. I was I'd gotten a master's degree, and I was it was natural to go on for a PhD. I'd gotten a lot of encouragement, had a lot of good opportunities, and I remember thinking, I'm a little bored with scholarship, like. Uh, just being a scholar mm-hmm. isn't what's going to fulfill me. I, there's creative work I do, and I was a lit English right, teacher. Right. So to my life as an English uh, a literature scholar, right. I saw where it was going. I love teaching. I think the four part of me love to teach. Right. But that scholarship thing just didn't hook me. But I have a friend, and when he got a negative review, he was in therapy for almost a year. Yeah. I don't mean this in an insulting way, but... You know, when you're an academic, it's people, everybody who has to respond to you, it's their job as an academic to right. find something wrong. Right. <laughs> right. They, they didn't do their say. part yeah. otherwise. Right. Right. I think there are fewer fours than any other number. Do you think that's true? Like, do you run into you very often? Well, uh, you know, one of the things the Enneagram has done is it's probably given fours a way to identify themselves and then online they get to find each other so probably <laughs> fours feel less rare to each other yeah. than they did before there was language right. to help describe right. it yeah i think that's true too um so uh but uh 
in day-to-day -day interactions and so on. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and of course this is maybe part of the pathology of a four, always having to be special or whatever, but right. I think there is this sense like, yeah, I'm probably a little odd by, by the standards of people around me. Well, you know, since you've heard me teach, I've changed some things. And I no longer say that I think the need for fours is to be special. Mm. Now I teach that I think the great need for fours is to be seen mm. and known mm. and for somebody to make an attempt to understand them. Yes. Does that fit better for you? It then? does. It does. In fact, as soon as you say that, can I share an anecdote sure, about sure, that? Sure, sure, sure. So I was teaching at a seminary and a student came up to me during one of the breaks and she said, uh, she said, I, I've read your books and I re read about what people say online about you. And she starts to cry, says, I feel so bad for you that people attack you. She's probably a two, probably. you know, and they attack you like this. And, and it, I feel so terrible. Well, meanwhile, I'm thinking she feels way worse about this than That's I right. do. Right. Right. And I said, well, you're obviously having some really deep emotion about this. This touches you in some way. And then she said, I'm a woman. I'm in seminary. Nobody even listens to me. There you go. And instantly I got it, yeah. you know. And I, in an ironic way, to be critiqued and to, is being taken seriously. That's right. And to be ignored is... Uh, you know, that's way more That's the painful. ultimate thing, isn't it? It's I like the it ultimate punishment. Yeah. 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 And I can imagine, you know, some folks saying, oh, I love being ignored. Nobody bothers me, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, for a four, you don't want to be bothered, but you really don't want to be ignored. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think fours don't want people to leave too soon. Yes. It's like, if we, you know, I think fours need people to hang in there a little yeah. bit. Okay, my perception in our years of friendship is that you either had times that were so stressful that you spent enough time in two-ness mm -hmm. that you get me mm -hmm. and other twos, or you just do. Mm. Which is it? <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, my job as a pastor, I was a pastor for 24 years, and the stresses of the pastorate pushed me toward being a two. In other words, when I was under stress, yep. I could always get a quick success by being a caring person, you know? So I felt that gravity, but here would be the problem. Like, I, I remember this so clearly, long before I had language like Enneagram yeah. to discuss it. I would spend a day doing counseling uh, pretty intense counseling. I would really help people. Like there are probably a lot of people who remember that day. I, you know, yeah. the hour I spent with them. And at the end of the day, I feel like, well, I didn't accomplish anything today. Like I got no emotional satisfaction out From of that. that. Um, and I think the reason is because whatever creative work that I wanted to do mm -hmm. didn't get done that day. And, and uh, interestingly, when I was early in my pastoral career, I think I would get some satisfaction because I was intrigued by understanding people. And, you know, I, I just want to understand them. Sure. And when I get a feel for how it worked. But I remember reaching a point after I'd been a pastor for many years and things started to be predictable. Mm -hmm. and, and it was interesting that, that I lost that. You know, I, I imagine to be a really good therapist, you can't lose that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was where I felt that intersection of, uh, of four and two. You know, an interesting piece of that for me is that I, um, I'm just mindful of the fact that for you, because you're doing repressed, yeah. I don't know how we're going to apply that to you because you do so much. That's the three part. Yeah. That comes in. And I also think you mentioned my parents. Yeah. So my dad was a seven. I think, uh, I, I think there were a lot of factors in his life, but, um, but you know, he was he was just energetic. He yeah. was an energetic person and always looking for stimulation. Somehow I picked that up. I know I, I picked that up from him. So it's patterned behavior, maybe. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that I'm aware of is that you are feeling dominant, but then by the definition of the system, thinking supports feeling. So you think about your feelings. Mm -hmm. And with a big five wing, you think longer than a four with a three wing. 
Interesting. Yeah. So there's more integration there. Yeah. Than there is for just thinking about it for a minute. Yeah. I'm finding because I'm thinking repressed. <laughs> that's the most embarrassing thing to say. <laughs> you know, I, I just have to walk through life saying I'm thinking repressed. And then I have to say, and in terms of Enneagram wisdom, not only am I thinking repressed, but my number is the only number that doesn't even touch thinking. I don't go to the thinking triad in stress. I don't go there in security. I, I don't have a wing there. It's like I'm void. <laughs> and here, but here, and here I am just brilliant, right? But, no, but here you've mastered this phenomenally sophisticated system better than anybody I know. Well, you know? thank you. I mean, and I, I do think I have. How do you explain that, by the way? Well, um, <laughs> because it helps you care for people. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Because it helps me understand where people yeah. are, are coming from, and yeah. then I can help them. Yeah. So it's been quite a journey for me to do work for the last eight or 10 years on really bringing up my repressed center. Yeah. Really working on bringing up thinking. And so the great question is always, is this mine to do? Mm -hmm. This is on the table and it's possible, but is this mine to do? I remember a time we were standing in the kitchen at our old house and I'm asking you what you think about me doing something. And Joe is behind you. And you looked right at me and said, well, have you thought through whether or not that's really something you want to do? That's my first question, you said. And then you said, and even if you want to do it, have you thought through whether or not you think that's a thing for you to do? And Joe was standing behind you going, <laughs> listen to him. Please listen to him. <laughs> but I think what people don't know is that if you don't have a coach, mm -hmm for bringing up what's repressed. Yes. Then you don't do it. So the demands of people on you would be so compelling that actually thinking about whether you wanted to do yeah. it, whether you had the bandwidth to do right. it, that thought, it's, it, you, it wouldn't cross your mind, or as soon as it did, it would be pushed right. aside because of the demands of people. That's exactly right. Yeah. And because the, at the end of the day, my need is to be needed. Yeah. So I had to change that, kind of like what you're talking about, into my need being to think about what's mine to do. Mm. But, and you talked eloquently about working on the whole four or five um, feeling and thinking about feeling and how all that tunis came in with your parishioners, mm. which you had to have both wings mm. to manage. Mm -hmm. Most fours, people are drawn to, but it they can't stay. Yeah, it's almost like there's there's too much there. So it's like I want to get to know that person who's a four. Yeah, but then it, there's an emotional override. Yeah, that causes people to back up. They're a disappointed. Bit. Yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah. How do you manage that? Do you feel it? Do you pick oh, it up? Oh, I really felt it. I, I felt I didn't feel it too much as a pastor because as a pastor you get to dose your you get to dose people with yourself for an hour right. in a sermon right? right but where I I struggled with it uh, is uh, as a boss as a as a chief of staff so my other staff members and fellow pastors uh, probably a lot of them are still in therapy because uh, they had such expectations there was something they wanted from me mm -hmm. uh, they wanted me to be their best friend. And, and what, if I could go back in time, what I'd want to say to those people is, listen, if you want the best that Brian can give you, read his books, read, read it, what he's written. That's where he's going to give you the best. It's, you it's not going to be being his pal. Um, and uh, I, I remember a, a, a priest friend of mine told me about one of his mentors, somebody he really wanted to be around. And um, when he got to spend a weekend with this older priest, mm -hmm. They went shopping, like buying toothpaste and, you know, stuff like this. Uh -huh. Well, I'm pretty sure that older priest was a four. Mm -hmm. And he was like so burdened by having this young mm -hmm. priest who wanted mm -hmm. to be around him all the time mm -hmm. that he just thought, I'll kill some time. I'll go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. I'll do what I got to do because I don't know what else to do with this guy. He wants something from me I can't give. And this priest who was closer to my age said to me, uh, 
you know, how, how he had wanted to be around this mentor and was so disappointed, yeah. but finally sort of got something out of it. And uh, as if to say, you know what, maybe sometimes it's just being with a person that's the thing that matters. It's yeah. not having to get something out yep. of them. But yep. I really struggled with that. And I could tell people wanted something from me. I wasn't able to give it to them. It wasn't that I was intentionally not giving right, it, right. you know. Just and if I, if I had tried to give it to them, mm -hmm. it would have been going into the two space that would have been super draining over time mm -hmm. for me. But So it's so interesting that you chose to tell that story because here's the story I was going to tell. Mm -hmm. We did a, a four-day, four-day, five-day intensive boot camp of sorts at Ghost Ranch. Yeah, that was a great time. And the more we taught, the more people sought us. I wasn't, like, not enjoying that, <laughs> being sought after. <laughs> but I, about halfway through, said to Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like, this time is too intense. Hmm. This place is so small that we're with these people all the time. <laughs> there are only 35 of them. I, I'm done, and I don't know what to do. And the next session, uh, you taught, and then we took a break, and as we came back from the break, people started coming at you from all directions. I mean, they were making a beeline for you, and you picked up a snake right <laughs> off the ground. You picked up a snake, and they all kind of slowed down a little bit, and if they approached you, you kind of talked to them about the snake. <laughs> and Joe came up behind me and said, if you're really tired of answering questions, perhaps Pick you should a get a snake. <laughs> but it's that diversion that you do intuitively mm. that I am having to learn to do mm. because of the significant difference in how. Yeah. We both want to teach and yeah. we both love teaching. Yeah. And we both want people to ask us questions yeah. and we both are in for all of it. Yeah. I don't get enough as soon as you do. You know, it's it's interesting. I remember that because that it was a big. It was a big snake. snake like it wasn't. We weren't playing. And he was totally placid. It was kind of amazing. But <laughs> what is actually renewing for me, after being a person in my head and you know all the rest, to just do things that are just enjoying the external world. Now I don't know if that's more true of me in the second half of life or whatever. But there is something that I really notice now. I like what I get enjoyment out of now is so much just being in the moment, enjoying external things with people. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, it, it's it's a vacation from that inward world that feels like it's bottomless and is filled with unanswerable questions all the time, you know. So my journal page from that day, literally, on the top in big, bold print says, what if you don't like snakes? <laughs> <laughs> and then I went through this whole thing in my journal about, what am I going to do? I get tired of people, too. I can't pick up a snake. And then your other end around that week was to take everybody hiking. Yes. So you've got people breathless. And then disappear. <laughs> <laughs> people were breathless trying to... Yeah. Keep up and hike. It's a very interesting way to announce that you've given all you have to give. Mm. And I think it has to do with the balance mm. you've achieved between being available and being unavailable. Mm. And I don't have any balance. So I, when I'm unavailable, mm. it hurts people. Well, that hurts people, too, sometimes. I think that's part, like, my priest friend, he was hurt a little bit at first when I came to spend a weekend with my mentor, and he went to buy toothpaste, yeah. you know? Yeah, But it's your compassionate two-ness that makes you realize, no, this is a coping strategy, or it's a necessary yeah. boundary for people. Right. You know, I, one of my favorite musicians, songwriters in the world, uh, I'm sure a, a four with a four wing. I mean, just such a deep <laughs> four. Only a four. Um, when we first became friends, he said, look, you need to know something about me. He said, I go up on stage and everybody, you know, thinks I'm the most affable, funny person. And I love performing. He says, but when I'm not performing, I'm a recluse. He says, I go days without speaking to a single person. 
And he said, the only way I have what I give on stage mm -hmm. is by the contraction I do. And he, it was his way of putting up a boundary and saying, here's how I do what I do, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, and uh, it's funny that that, I forget so much, but that stays with me, I think, because something inside of me said, I need to figure out how to have boundaries like that yeah. too, you know? Yeah. I just think that's, that's part, it's probably part of what's much harder for a two, I would think, is giving yourself permission to say, I need boundaries. Yeah. Because if my whole being is giving, well, no, my whole being isn't giving. I need, I need to inhale as well as exhale. Sure, and and twos who don't do that yeah. get mad at the people who need them. That's right. They yeah. set people up to need them, and then they get yeah. mad at them for needing them. It's a fascinating thing. It is fascinating. Actually. Yeah. All right, we've talked about all your moves except to one. So, uh, where does that move to one in security? What do you do in yeah. that space? Let me make an observation about it. I'd love to know what you think about this because I've. You know, I've heard you speak about it. I've read about it. And it's ironic. I'm married to a one, you know, uh, and probably this has something to do with our our marriage uh, is that probably the one is the least penetrable to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, me too. Uh, I agree. And I think what I notice in myself is real fast. Will you elaborate on just that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the irony is. Uh, you know, like um, Grace, my wife, says about me, you're always breaking rules. And everything in her mind is oriented toward keeping rules. Mm -hmm. And it's really true. I, like, I just see every rule as, you know, it, it's negotiable, right? Or or th there's a story behind it. And if you know the story, it's not so impressive or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, yep. so uh you know, loving all of this. Keep there's all some, always some creative work to do uh, there. And I don't mean that like, oh, you want to cheat. I'm not talking about that. I'm sure talking not. about, uh, but, uh, you know, social conventions, all that sort of thing. I, I don't understand the hold of rules on people. But here's the thing I notice in my life. One of my dysfunctions is the creative part of me always wants to take on one new project, start one new thing. Mm. And what that means is I'm almost always in a hurry or always late. Uh, because I'm always taking on something else. But when I don't do that, and I have the time to really get something as perfect as I possibly can, mm -hmm. uh, that feels really, re that feels good. So what do you perfect? Well, as a writer, you know, getting to the place where every sentence you feel really good about and you not only feel good about every sentence but the connection between every sentence you you feel great about the flow that uh you know you, there's always a tension between perfecting that and going on to the next new idea that you have you know so uh, the times where i feel i'm giving myself time i'm i'm restraining the urge to run on to the next new thing that, that probably feels like going to that one healthy one mm -hmm. space. That's right. I think that. Yeah. I think that's what, uh, why people confuse fours and sevens from the outside. Oh, that's good. Because I could have said all the same things right there. Yeah. And there's a sense of accomplishment that from the one space. Yes. Even in finality, it's like, I, yes. I've done, I've done something good. I've, I do yeah. fun stuff all the time. Yeah. And. Uh, joyous stuff all the time. Yeah. But I've done this thing good. Yeah. And I've done this thing well. Yeah. I, I think that that's really, really true. So our friend Cheryl mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> is my uh, friend and first editor. And Cheryl said to me at the uh, end of our working and her looking over my final edits on The Path Between Us, she said, well, do you feel good about every sentence? Hmm. I thought, what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> that would move me right back to seven space. I'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel, I said, I feel like every sentence is going to be helpful. Yeah. Does that mean you feel good about every sentence? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. It's like, that's not in me. Yes. Yeah. That feeling good about every sentence yeah. and this flows into this sentence. Yeah. I don't think this is the place to say that. But I don't have any of that. Yeah. I just feel good about how I think it's going to help other yeah. people. And and my guess is that there are way more people that would rather read that book 
that was just written out of the impulse to help people uh, than people who really are going to care about every sentence being heavily crafted. In fact, some of that is just done for the benefit of the writer. Of the writer Got you it. Know. It's why, you know, people complain about this, but uh, I was a writing teacher and I used to teach my students that there's a big difference between writer-based writing and reader-based writing. Oh, there you go. So the writer-based writing is the writing that the writer felt was effective, authentic self-expression. Got it. And the writer might feel great about it. The reader might think, I don't have time for this, or I'm just not that interested in your self-expression, right? But my gosh, you, you know, you've got a problem, and somebody's written a book to help you with that problem. They weren't worrying about every sentence, but that's the book you're going to turn to. You know? So did y'all catch that? Because that's quintessential Brian McLaren. It doesn't matter what the person he's talking to says. He makes you feel good about where you are. I love you for that. Well, and it always is real. It's like it doesn't ever feel like fluff. It's like I'm I'm now a reader-based writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what's interesting about that is, to whatever degree you know, I certainly have not uh, uh, a fraction of the grasp of the Enneagram system that you have. But that's why that system is so helpful. You know, it it, it really is helpful. Yeah, it really is. So it really is helpful. And so my way of looking at my work with my one wing is, did I say that in a way they can hear it? Yeah. Not, did I yeah. say that the right way? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. This is, could be a, another whole subject, but, you know, all the different ways that writers get writer's block. Yeah. It'd be interesting to think about it from within an Enneagram framework, um, because probably a person's type makes them define the task of writing in such a different way. Sure. You know, I had to put a picture of a person who was all nine numbers. Yeah. I had to hang it up <clears throat> above my desk so I was writing to somebody. Yes, yes. And I would look right into their eyes in that photograph and think, now, are, are you going to understand this? Is this going to hurt your feelings? Yeah. It was really exhausting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. never answered me. It, it was yeah. such a problem. And that's why your book is so helpful. Uh, it's because you actually were imagining real people that you, whose problem you could solve, you could help solve or help them solve. Uh, I love all those things you said to me. And I take them all in because I know you don't fluff. I'm all about all that. And I can do that all day. But without what you're doing, it's not going to get us anywhere. I can help people get themselves to a place where they can hear the kind of work you're trying to do to make us more aware in our faith, more conscious of what we're doing in the name of our faith, mm. more dialed into what we could do mm. to do all that better. I do think I'm the, I'm the warm-up act in a way that can prepare people to get themselves out of the way so that they can hear what you're saying. Mm. Can you give an example of how if people understand themselves better, mm. they can hear you better? Mm. Well, it's so I don't see it. I, I, I think I see it something similar to what you're saying, but I wouldn't ever say I think you're the warm up back for what I do. What I would say is all of us, it's the, the phrase you use all the time. What's mine to do? Yeah. And and if everybody was like me, we'd be in so much trouble. If everybody was like you, we all have a different part to play sure, in this sure. thing. And and every part is important at some at some point in the process. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like I, I mean, one of the issues that I wish this weren't true, but it is. I wake up every single day thinking we have four hundred fifteen parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. And I just want you to know I've never woken up thinking yeah, that. I, I, I wake up thinking that. And I think my grandchildren are in trouble. Right. I think the creatures are in trouble. The plankton in the ocean is in trouble, right? Like this thing of this environmental crisis that we have, I, I can't escape from it. And so I've got some little part to play. But I also know that there are engineer, electrical engineers working on battery technology. Right. And there are political scientists working on how can we change the politics. And there are activists trying to figure out how do we shut down Exxon, Exxon's lies. Right. You know, and 
every one of these parts is important. And this is to me another thing that I think Enneagram helps mm -hmm. with. It just helps us realize my thing, no matter how good I'm at, I am mm -hmm. at it, is so partial. It is so limited. And the best shot we have is from the, the whole circle uh, working together. And, you know, that's an inspirational thing to say, like a team building talk. But it's true. You, you get to a point in your life and you just think it is so stinking true. Yeah. And the arrogant people who think that if everyone would just be like them, our problems would yeah. be solved. Oh, my goodness. And, and, you know, they go around trying to make the world in their image. And you get to a point where you just realize, oh, please do not be made in my image, yeah. you know. Yeah, not mine. <laughs> do you remember that publication that we had in LTM for a little while? And we worked really hard on how to name it, and we named it Hold On. Mm. Um, so for people who don't know, Hold On is a term that scientists have come up with that the reality is they can't find anything in the whole universe that is not whole and complete unto itself and part of a greater whole. Yeah. Nothing in the universe. That's fascinating. It really is. And my concern is that if I don't do what's mine to do in terms of, and I mean this in the most loving way possible, if I don't do what's mine to do in terms of helping, mm. they can't wake up thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You you can't wake up yes. thinking about a bigger picture yes. thing. Yes. If every day you wake up thinking about yes. whether or not you're okay yes. and whether or not the way you see the world is okay and all, you just yes. you can't do it. And if you're totally wrapped up in the thousand conflicts you have with people and you're totally torn apart right. by stress because you're treating people like uh, like you would treat them as an unhealthy version of right, yourself. Right, right, right. You, you have that. you have no energy left for anything That's right. constructive. Yeah. And so. I think because I'm so conscious of being thinking repressed, yeah. I think I've looked for signals in the culture of whether or not we're living in a thinking repressed or feeling repressed or doing repressed culture. Hmm. And I think that we are part intuitively, but part intentionally thinking repressed because we haven't understood that all we have to do is our part. Yeah. So it's like it's so big to think about. I can't stop global warming. I can't stop I, I, or climate change. I can't. I can't affect that. I don't even understand technology, so I can't do anything about that. I can't do anything about so many things, so I'm not gonna yeah. think about it. That's a. That's a such a scary thing for me. Yeah. It's pretty easy, don't you think, though, to conclude that we're not a doing repressed culture. No, Everything we're not. is due without thinking sometimes. Without, yes. I mean, and without feeling. Right. As long as you do. Literally just do it. I'm. <laughs> right. I've right. heard that. I've heard that somewhere yeah. before. No one, just feel it. That yeah. would be a good, just, just think about Let's it first. Let's get some just feel it t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wear one all the time. I guess that wouldn't be good though. No. And I'll get, just, <laughs> just think, just think about it. Nike. Yeah. That's. <laughs> so. I just believe that we're thinking repressed because we don't, not because we can't think. Yeah. I think it's because we don't know what to think about. Yeah. And I think that's because we don't know what our part is. So you got a long journey from growing up and loving to read nerdy things and get up and read all books possible and then teaching literature and then starting just a dinner group that became a church and becoming a pastor and becoming a public teacher and becoming an author and becoming the heretical soul who's out. What is the one thing that's consistent all the way through the journey and how does it support you? That's the first question. And the second question is, where do you have balance between thinking, feeling, and doing? Hmm. This baby is this ruining our podcast with their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet baby. So uh, I, I don't know how to answer your first question. I, I'll throw out one or two things that pop into my mind, but I'm not sure they really get to, 
You know, I, I always feel a, I think this is very for, but there is this draw of beauty. Uh, and beauty, it seems to me, has a, a feeling component and a thinking component. And there's this sort of, in, there's this thing of appreciating details and holes right. and the relationship between parts and holes. You know, I, I, music's always been a big part of my life. I, it feels like when I love music, that's the same thing I'm loving when I love an ecosystem. And it's the same thing I love when I'm trying to understand a theological system or a philosophical system. Like it's looking for beauty and pattern and all the rest. So whatever that is, and it, you know, that's part of the brain. It's part of the way the brain works. So uh, I think that's been part of my, uh, part of my drive uh, through everything. I get that that's part of the brain, but that's not that I I would never say that. Yeah. I would say that what's common through all of it for me is connecting, 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 connecting. Connecting with people. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't say that. Yeah. So, right. Right. Uh, I think that's that that's a big part of it. And then another part of it is uh, it, and here's where the authenticity thing leads me to doing. Okay. I grew up fundamentalist, right? And fundamentalism puts all kinds of strictures on you, and when inside, what you think doesn't match with what you're being told to say or pray or sing, suddenly you've got inauthenticity. Um, if I say what they're telling me to say, I'm being dishonest. There you go. If I don't say what I'm telling to say, then I'm being a rebel. Uh, how do I? integrate this right so the struggle of trying to be authentic makes you have to speak it makes you have to do your homework it makes you have to have courage and mm -hmm. go against the flow mm -hmm. and 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 i think the reason i do that's very different from the way the reason an eight would do it that's right, right. Uh, but it ends up looking a little bit the same mm -hmm. um and uh, so i think that's a big one of the consistencies too and uh I think my type is supposed to have a doing repressed, right? right? And I think a lot of my, my wife would laugh at that because she sees me as so, you know, task oriented. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, whatever. But for me, I'll tell you what that feels like. It feels like the drive to create, the drive to produce. Right. And, and that's doing. For, that's the kind of sure. doing that I do. Sure. Yeah. And doing has to be what needs to be done, not yeah. the next shiny thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We've got a question from the gallery. Okay, what is so it? It's a good one. How has Brian's orientation to the past as a four lived out? Could you help me understand that question more first? Sure. As a four, with orientation to the past, your response to something sad would be, of course this happened. This happened when I was 11. It happened when I was... Mm. Now, you might say, but I'm better able to handle it now. But you would orient yourself to what's happening based on your history. Yeah. Whereas orientation to the present, I orient, I orient to what's happening based on what's happening right now. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Right? Yeah. And future orientation is, I'm never going to be in this spot again. <laughs> and here's how I'm going to handle it. Get out of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I'll just tell you whatever that is in me is so deep. I don't think, I, and it's so natural that I'm not sure I can see around it, e even to say anything about it. So David White, the poet, you know, he's got a little book. You know the book Consolations? Yes. I have a love-hate relationship yes. with that book. Yes. But, you know, it's just a word. It's just a word at the top of the page. You think early in the morning with your coffee, how much could this hurt? Yes. And then you read that maturity according to David White, is being able to hold the past, the present, and the future simultaneously yes. all at one time. Yes. And I just declared the day I read that that I will, I will never be mature. That sounds like the hardest thing. I can much more easily imagine being able to balance thinking and feeling yeah. and doing or balance self-preservation and sexual and social than orientation of time. Yeah. I, yeah, you know, uh, I... I don't know how to answer that of how that works for me just because it's it, I can't even see around like I, I just the way I see is is like I, I think about everything I've tried to do has required me to understand some history. Yep. So here's what I want to say. The book that we chose to talk about here mm -hmm. tomorrow um, has to do with your work 
on spiritual migration yeah. and where we're headed. Yeah. And I think you do it better than anybody, frankly. And you know, I'm not just, I love you, so I don't have to give you strokes. <laughs> I think the great spiritual migration has everything to do with integrating the past and the present and the future. Yeah. And so I would argue that because of what is yours to do for the kingdom, you've had no choice but to yeah. engage with all three. Do you think a potential byproduct of bringing up your press center and finding balance in those other things is maturity by that definition? Yes. Do yes. you think it would be balancing the past, present, and future? I do think that. And I also, if y'all who are here have noticed, it, when Brian gets to a, an important thing that he's trying to explain to me, his answer has to do with the tension he experienced. And he does it with, he uses his hands like this, he does this whole thing. And I bet if we go back and look at this, every time it's going to be heart and head. Mm. Yeah. 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 Which sort of makes sense. Uh, uh, you know, I, the book I'm in the middle of writing right now is called uh, Faith After Doubt. And I'm really grappling with the issue of doubt and faith and what faith looks like before doubt and in the middle of doubt and what happens once some kind of faith survives and has been in some ways decimated by doubt. But on the other hand, maybe it's been purified or liberated by doubt. So that's the process I'm, I'm working on in this book. And it, it's I've been trying to be somewhat psychological about it. And I, so I've done a bunch of reading on the modular brain. And, and it's really interesting relating to, uh, to Enneagram because- Okay, you got me now. Yeah, no, because- You lost me on modular brain, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm back in. But if you think of it, you just think he about this- He did that intentionally, he hooked you back <laughs> in. He saw you look away on modular brain. Oh, Enneagram. <laughs> but you think, you know, here's this hunk of uh, cells, you know, that- yeah. uh, and psychology and uh, neurologists are able to actually see you know different parts that light up like they can see energy happening right. so they're starting to map out the brain and and you know the very simple ways of saying it are left brain right brain sure. or another way is to say the brain stem the it which some people call the reptilian brain the mammalian brain and the primate brain all different kinds of ways to say it. more sophisticated uh you know uh, scholars and, and uh, researchers are talking about dozens, scores, and even well over a hundred discrete modules that they can see in the brain. And which I think we all intuitively know. You, sure. you, you hear about somebody who has a stroke or a brain trauma and they lose their ability to speak or they lose executive function. I've just gone through this with my mother who died of, uh, of dementia and watching her lose different parts of her brain function over the last several years has been, you know, so sad, but also it's just been a reminder of what it means to be a human being. Sure. So you think we're all born with these brains that are unformed and then they get formed and every trauma completely against our will, mm -hmm. bang, you know, now we've got something to try to integrate mm -hmm. in this thing. I mean, it's amazing any of us are doing as well as we are, sure, you know, sure. but it, I think that has to be what maturity is. It, figuring out how do we integrate these different uh, parts of our brain in a way that's going to work, in a way that works well with others. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I have a feeling that the, those nine numbers are really just about nine common ways of this task that we all share of integrating all of these little modules yeah. to work together yeah, in the course of a lifetime. Having been all besieged with different traumas and treated to different pleasures mm -hmm. and everything else. And it's, it's easy to tie that to this great spiritual migration of moving out of what is comfortable and what you already know is what yes. I pick up from that. Like if we just, if I just keep growing into the areas that I know, there's no growth, there's no maturity and it gets worse and worse. Oh, that makes me want to circle back to that past, present, future thing yeah. because this is our huge problem in the world of religion. Uh, you can only be concerned about the past. I mean, a huge sector of religion is so preoccupied right, with the past. Right, right. You have to say what they always said, exactly the way right. they said it. The music has to be the same. You know, every like this obsession with the past. We could guess which uh, numbers are in control, sure. I think, when, that, when that's happening. Um, we have some people who, some denominations and congregations that manage to integrate 
the past and the present because we got to pay the bills right. and their demand and people are leaving and the young people have gone. So now they start caring about the present. But where things really get interesting is if you say part of what religion is supposed to do is give birth to a better future. Oh, well, such a tiny percentage of our religious world are thinking about that. Any thought of that. Right. It's, yeah. So how many churches do you think are mature by this definition that are balancing the past, the present, and the future? Because it yeah. seems like that's, a, that's what's lacking. And what's so sad to me about that, Joel, is it's not just that they aren't doing it. It's that they think they're not supposed to do it. Or if they were to try to do it, you'd be unfaithful. In fact, if, this is a bit of theological nerdery for, you know, in the Christian tradition. But we have this whole field of theology called eschatology. Yes. And for a whole lot of people, what eschatology does is it means don't worry about the future. The future is a script that's already written or the world's going to be right. destroyed. Right. Don't, it, it, you know, it, it's this way of committing future suicide. You know, we, no, no concern. In my less healthy space, I like to call that future Joel will handle that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem for future Joel to deal with. We're, we're doing that's, good right now. That's, uh, he does that a lot. Well, not so much anymore. Oh my gosh, not so much that. anymore. But that's a good. He's the only person who I've ever heard verbalize that that'll have to be handled by him out there. Yes. Right? Yes. Well, my new book. Is-